those groups who are pushing more and more patient interaction through their portal are recognizing huge gains in time and efficiency, which just opens the doors for more access and more patient visits. Hello, I'm Dave Gans, MGMA Senior Fellow for Industry Affairs, welcome you to the executive session a monthly discussion with the healthcare leader on a crucial issue of interest to help medical practice executives. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Andrew Swanson. Andrew is MGMA Vice President for Industry Insights. Andy and I had the opportunity to co-present an educational session at the MGMA Annual Conference, Adapt and Optimize Your Staffing Model for Value-Based Success. My portion of the session examined how different types of practices have different staffing needs and consequently different levels of staffing. More interestingly, I think Andy then described how to create a high-performing care team and how value-based payment requires a different mix and number of staff than what a practice would need under fee-for-service payment. Andy, can you introduce yourself and then describe your background and current MGMA responsibilities? Sure, Dave. Um, Again, my name is Andy Swanson, Vice President of Industry Insights with MGMA. My current role is about bringing the best practices that are going on across the industry to audiences far and wide. So, As it relates to this particular subject, before joining MGMA, uh, I worked as a performance management and performance improvement consultant inside of a health system. And what I learned during that five-year stint is that when, when transitioning, not just in payment models, but when building teams, really it's about kind of the, the patient centricity. And I, I think that notion carries forward through value-based payments and getting care teams as led by their physician or physician groups to be most focused on the patient, which I think if that filters through the teams, then you get to be a high, a high, high delivery or high performance uh, delivery team. I think real good point. I think, in fact, let's just talk about that first broad subject of building a team. And you talk about how a high-performing team needs to be both patient-centered and physician-led, because I think this is an area that not only practices, but especially I think practices that may be part of health systems sometimes have a problem with. Yeah, Dave, I mean, I think any team, regardless of the industry that you're in, um, has to be focused first on a goal in order for it to be high performing. So in our business, obviously, the patient is the goal, right? Patient outcome and clinical care. And so I think if that becomes the team's sole focus, putting the patient in the middle and that becomes the goal, more broadly speaking, we'll say the patient panel, um, if we're thinking about population health effectiveness, um, then I think everything flows downhill from there. So certainly the team is taking direction and leadership from their physician leader and making sure that the, the, the physician is aligning the care plan, um, not just for the patient, but across the entire team so they can execute their skill set for that patient at the best of their ability and at the highest use of their uh, degree or licensure. And I think Again, as long as that team member is keeping the patient in mind, using the care plan and the physician leadership as their directional compass, so to speak, then I think everything flows from there. And then everybody works together in the best interest of the patient, be it the physician, the front office person who's, who's working with the, the patient on their billing, to the nurse who's rooming them and, and following up um, on their care plan when they're not in the office. I think everything then flows downhill from there. Yeah, I agree. And, and of course, being physician-led means a physician-directed clinical portion of the practice. But it's much more than that. I think physician-led extends into the business aspects, uh, the governance of the organization, that you have to have the patient in mind as you look at the practice organization's strategic plan and how that plan is executed. Uh, can you give us some more insights? 
Sure. I mean, as it relates to kind of governance and, the, and the, how the practice uh, operates, I mean, I think what we're getting into is kind of this notion of population health. And I think this is one of the key differentiators as practices move from fee-for-service to fee-for-value is that this, the, the whole notion of keeping entire populations healthy or um, out of the clinic or out of um, a care setting is, is the most important thing, right? And so changing role definitions to better suit care coordination capabilities for the benefit of the entire population, not just for a sole patient during or immediately before or immediately following their visit. And I think that takes some buy-in from the top. So from ownership, be it uh, an independent practice or a um, health system or venture capital-owned practice, I think everybody needs to buy in that that's the goal. And then each role then plays a part in that under the guidance of the physician leader. You're right. And in fact, value-based care, I think, is, is one of the elements that really requires a practice to look beyond the more traditional aspect of direct patient care by a doctor and look at additional services that are going to support the patient's health and well-being. Uh, you know, you, you describe how value-based care requires practices to look at aspects of care such as care coordination. In other words, coordinating the services of your practice with that of other health systems, other, uh, other practices, referral doctors, primary care doctors, and the like, as well as population health, and then telemedicine, uh, providing care to the patient that may not require a face-to-face visit. Uh, can you give some more insights into these areas? Because this is that extension into value-based care. Sure, and, and we'll get a little deeper into it through the conversation when we talk about staffing and how you how do you accomplish these things, but I'll take each one kind of quickly separately now. So from a care coordination perspective, I mean, I think you, you said it, it, it's working the patient through the continuum of care. And so be it at my practice setting, um, an alternative um, practice setting, or most importantly, most of the time patients aren't in a care setting, right? So how do we make sure that we're keeping in contact with the with the patient when they're not in a care setting, I think becomes paramount. And I think those groups and practices who are doing patient communication the best are beginning to have the most success with driving down costs, keeping patients in the appropriate care setting while maintaining um, optimal uh, clinical outcome. I think then you take that notion of care coordination and you extrapolate it outside of just the individual patient and you put it into a patient panel. And then you're thinking about how do we um, analyze the health and wellness of that panel and then target um, care interactions with the appropriate groups of patients to make sure that they're getting the care when they need it um, hopefully preventatively, of course, to make sure that the outcomes downstream are, are optimal, not just for the patient, but of course for the entire panel. And then, I, I mean, I think third, you mentioned tele, um, but I think all sorts of access conversations come to bear because if you're not talking about a traditional patient visit, then you have to be talking about where to access the patient in a time that will be beneficial for both the patient and, of course, for the provider group and the care team, um, making sure that they can um, devote the appropriate type of interaction with the patient when the patient needs it and when they're able to give it. So I think telemedicine, diagnosis, things as easy as prescription refills and some of the other kind of access points that people need um, non-emergently, hopefully, um, but making sure that the patients get uh, the care they need when and where they need it. Yeah, yeah in fact, I've uh, read where organizations are moving substantially into uh, virtual medicine. In other words, uh, utilizing secure email communications between patients and providers. But even direct communications, uh, especially if the practice 
uh, under value-based payment is trying to reduce the cost of care. So if you can provide services that have virtually no billing cost, in other words, being a televisit or a email exchange, you actually reduce the cost of care, which results in the practices benefit. When you mention population health, uh, there are elements that uh, say that we have to look beyond just the direct ser- medical care services and start looking at elements of lifestyle medicine, you know, where practices look at and assist the, practice, the patient in their nutrition management and also their activity, you know, where organizations have provided patients with exercise regimes so they can walk more, and they find that that increases health status and reduces patient visits and reduces health care costs. I think all of these things play into kind of a successful navigation of population health management. And then the trick becomes who in a practice is responsible for these things, right? And I, I think, if I may, you know, I think that's where the conversation goes to next when, when practices are, are looking at an existing staffing plan and saying, I've got these nurses and these MAs um, and these types of um, administrative support, be it in billing or leadership. And, and how, how and what do I do with these current staff members? Because we're busy seeing patients every day. So how do I take on the extra burden of kind of this population health management? Yeah, I think, in fact, you know, the traditional staffing model where, for example, each doctor has an assigned nurse. It could be an MA, an LPN, a registered nurse, depending on the case complexity and the desires of the doctor. And that nurse would provide virtually all patient services. Value-based care you know, because they have a very diverse uh, set of tasks needed to be performed, oftentimes you need to look at a team approach to providing care to the doctors. What do you think about that that model? How can a practice implement it? That's, I think, part of the excitement in this in this navigation to value is that I think it offers um, role expansion, new duties to care teams who may be a bit stuck in a rut instead of a nurse or an MA sitting down with a provider for an hour at the beginning of the day to walk through the morning schedule, talking about patients that are about to come in and making sure that you know everybody's prepped and ready for that. That work still, of course, has to go on. But I think you look to a nurse or an MA who, who might need a change, right, or have a different skill set and, and think about, hey, would, would this notion of we're interacting with our technology to do uh, more proactive reach out either through secure messaging or telephonic research or Heck, in the future, maybe it's programming the bot, right, Um, to to reach out to our patient panel to talk about, you know, all of our diabetes patients and their care plan, you know, with a a risk stratification of X and above, right? So I I think that's where you you look at a nurse and say, okay, so instead of devoting your your day every day to working hand in hand with the doctors, you know, maybe for this quarter or this, this year, you're taking on the responsibility of our patient panel. And, and thinking about kind of care management differently, certainly interacting with other providers, including the physicians, to talk about case by case and patient by patient situations. But I think thinking about it more from a, a broad perspective, and then you know letting an MA do the rooming and, and some of the intake and, and visit support that that nurse may typically be doing. You know, you touched Dave on on some of the care coordination efforts, and we talk a lot about. You said nutritional services. I mean, I think just broadly speaking, this entire care plan tied to patient education about you know, whatever's going on with their health, you know, somebody has to be engaged in that education process from the practices perspective. And, you know, taking a nurse out of a role that is direct patient care and and putting them 
um, from a one-to-one perspective and putting them into a one-to-many education setting, I think can be really invigorating for, for that care team member. Not everybody's, you know, ready or willing or maybe even skilled um, to make that change, but I think there are, you know, plenty of great providers who stuck in a rut, you know, perform one way. And I think given an opportunity can really thrive in a different sort of setting. And I think people are open and, and willing and wanting to have kind of a new experience as it relates to that. That just builds the team. It builds the team. Also, what you now may have the opportunity is to find talented, motivated staff members who are in-house and let them, you know, teach them new skills, let them take new responsibilities and through that, perhaps have promotion within the practice, added compensation because they're now accomplishing a more complex task, and you know, which is important to the organization. Now, of course, you know, as you talk about this new team, as you start moving more away from maybe one-on-one nursing to doctor, and you start needing to add new staff or retraining staff members, uh, there are advantages to, to each model. In other words, you know, do, if you need new skills, we just hire new people. Or can we look at the people we have in-house? Are they subject, Can we retrain them and just hire a person to replace them in their old job, and they'll have new skills and new responsibilities? Uh, give us some of your thoughts on training versus recruiting, and I know you want to do both, but what should a practice executive be thinking about when they start looking at changing their care model? Yeah, I mean, I think with everything in life, balance is true. So I, I think anybody who's making the journey you know, dipping toes or, or feet into the water of value-based care. I think what you'll learn quickly is that your staff has, you know, different and, and ever-changing skill sets. And so I think you always will have an opportunity to upskill existing staff. And I think the trick is defining what skills are reasonably achievable. Um, so I keep going back to the patient panel management sort of thing. You know, a good nurse is, is working across patients today and their, and their providers or physicians to, to understand care plans, not just on an individual basis, but across, you know, a, a diagnosis status. And so I think those clinicians who have that ability to look across a patient panel today are, are apt to, to learn some of the nuance of, you know, what does a, a panel management plan look like? And, and being able to teach them the skill of actually documenting how that that panel management plan is going to work, I think is, is well within their reach because they already have a bent towards understanding the way multiple patients intersect with, with a similar care plan over time. So I think that, that lends itself to an easy upskilling opportunity. Differentially, perhaps, is and we're all struggling, I think, at times with this, is the appropriate usage of, of aggregate data. And you know, somebody who, who sees patients every day clinically may or may not be very apt to data aggregation and then the manipulation and analysis of data on a large scale. So that may be a place where the skill jump is just too far that you may need to recruit or hire in a different skill set. So I I think there's opportunities for both. I think the effective practice leader has to evaluate where their staff members can take a stretch and achieve a great outcome in, in stretching their own professional capabilities to achieve something more, whereas that step in some cases is going to be just too great, right? And then you risk failure of that person in a new role, failure of that person potentially out of the organization when perhaps the recognition of, hey, you know what, that skill set entails a new, a brand new person to fill that role. That's where I think that the effective practice leader is going to analyze the current staff and then articulate where we can upscale and where we need to recruit for. 
Yeah. No, you've talked about the, the need for new skills and new processes in the organization to, to deal with the concepts of population health and reducing the cost of care that's necessary for value-based payment. You know, you've also noted how uh, some of this model already exists, at least in primary care, through the concept of a patient-centered medical home. Do you want to talk about how the patient-centered medical home is a model for value-based care staffing? Yeah, sure. I mean, NCQA has been delivering kind of their guidelines for, for years now. And I think what they do a good job of is talking about you know, the technical or systematic sort of requirements it takes. So things like technology, right, EHR, um, enhanced uh, communication um, via digitally or telephonically or through SMS or, or other vehicles, right, and just a, a, a broader capability of handling more complex cases um, because you're going to be at, at the primary care setting kind of the driver of a lot of these, the, the referral patterns. So I think that's where the additional services comes in where a PCMH model starts to articulate, you know, additional services like behavioral health or nutritional counseling or sort of a different level of patient education um, and coordination, which refers back to the, the communication component. I think these are well outlined in, in PCMH or NCQA status. And all of those things come with cost. So I think the effective group that I've seen internalize what it means to become a PC or recognized PCMH is they start to shift resources from one category to another so as not to handle a net new cost burden, but to shift costs from one to another. So we've been talking about the nursing examples and moving from direct patient care into some population management. I think now you can talk about you know optimizing your technology spend um, to think about integrated um, messaging platforms, right, so that you can have more automated patient interaction digitally so that you're not using staff members' time to do that because it's costly and it does take time. You know, all the portal, patient portal things that are coming to bear now, those groups who are pushing more and more patient interaction through their portal are recognizing huge gains in time and efficiency, which just opens the doors for more access and more patient visits. So so I think it's, it's these sorts of ways to think about cost shift as opposed to cost add that NCQA and the PCMH model began the conversation of, and I think groups are, are really starting to take uh, more effective approaches to do that some of that cost shift. In fact, I know you, know, you and I have had discussions regarding MGMA's data that supports what you just described, the added cost in staffing and added cost in, uh, in adding new services and, new, and also new technologies in the organization. Um, you know, if you were to look at MGMA's data that we have for, for practices that are patient-centered medical home, what have you seen in the shift in how practices staff? Some of the recent data points to shifts in, in the positive, meaning lower costs for groups who um, have identified as PCMH in things like business operation support. So what's great about that is, you know, if you gain, the data says you gain about a quarter to, to a third of an FTE in this, what's great is you're shifting costs out of kind of administrative buckets because you need to shift that cost into a more clinically facing sort of group. So in that same cohort of recognized PCMH or self-identified PCMH, the clinical support goes up by about the same amount. So again, we're talking about, you know, between a quarter and a half of an FTE, but again, if you're taking away half of the time for a, a billing clerk or a front desk support person or an administrator, and you're shifting that to another quarter to a half an FTE in a clinical support role, that just makes sense, right? Because now you're talking about patient panel support. You know, I think there's there's another 
um, aspect of this, which is getting people through all of the steps in a care plan, not necessarily tied to a physician visit. And I think that does require some more um, administrative and potentially some clinical time as well. So that's where some of these additional costs do come in and where you hear groups trying to get support for care coordination services from payers, private payers, mostly just so that they can offset some of the shift until they become highly effective in a new model using staff differently or potentially using different staff, right? Hiring a different role than they previously had done in the past. In fact, as we've described, changing payment requires a practice executive to change more just the number and skill of the practice. Uh, what advice can you provide for a physician or, or administrator who's leading a practice who is going to about to participate in an ACO or accept a capitation payment contract or otherwise transition to pay its payment mechanisms? It, it circles back to the beginning of the conversation about building a, a highly effective and high-performing care team. The first is, and, and if you put your practice in the center of this, I think the, the, the notion is we all need to be in this you know, expected outcome together. So we're going to join this ACO. We're going to take on a new, a new and different types of contract. So let's make sure that all the physicians are on the same page and they understand what this means for them. Let's understand that we're trying to be, that the goal today now is um, entire population health management and doing the best for our entire panel. And I think first comes alignment in that notion that you would be surprised to hear about the number of groups who enter into this and, and some people don't understand its impact. They don't understand why it matters to them. And so I think starting at the top and getting alignment is the first step. And then I think from there we talk about, okay, so what are the outcomes that we're looking to achieve in this, in this new way of, of, of addressing it? And so then you can start to articulate, okay, so the goals of this contract or joining the ACO are to drive down costs, um, to increase uh, quality of care. And what does that mean across our panel? If I'm a specialist, if I'm a specialty group, it looks like one thing. If I'm a primary care group or a multi-specialty group, it looks like something different. So talk about the actual goals, clinical goals, of how we're going to work to achieve um, those things. Then you can start to get into what we talked more about today. What does each person do? How does this impact their role? How do we make sure that they're you know, rowing there or in the same cadence as the rest of the team are so that we're moving this proverbial ship forward? as a practice so that we can best serve our patient group. And so I think it, it starts at the top with alignment, then it goes into outcome focus, and then getting the team aligned on those outcomes and shifting their roles to make sure that the staff are, are, are able to do what you need them to do in order to achieve the outcomes that you've set forward and be successful in kind of the new environment. You know, th there is so much in this area. And we've only, we have only t started to talk about what happens in a practice as this payment changes, and you have to start looking at how do you provide a different set of services. Uh, the core services of caring for the patients don't change, but how you do it and the process and also how do you look beyond the direct services to how to provide a scope of services that uh, in total cost less money it is really a different environment for many, many practices. Uh, so there's so much more we could discuss what are the takeaways? I mean, I think in closing, Dave, what I would say is good good providers, physicians or other clinicians, got into this game to take care of people. And I don't think that moving to a value-based payment model changes that at all. And in fact, many physicians I've spoken with when, when examining kind of the move to value um, are, are somewhat reinvigorated because now I can look up from, you know, patient Andy and see 
patient Dave and, and, and the rest of my panel and think about how do I provide the, the most optimal care for all of, the, of that panel, not just for a particular patient in front of me. And I think it can be a, a exciting clinical conversation to really lift up the, the capabilities of the entire team so that the physician as the leader of that care team can really recharge their entire clinical staff and administrative staff as well in supporting those patients through whatever part of the, the healthcare journey that they happen to be on, be it in a wellness state and you know an, an immediate state of acuity or in a long-term sort of chronic care setting. And, and I think when viewed in that lens, then value-based payments or capitation or, or whatever payment model is coming to bear, it isn't necessarily the boogeyman, right? It's it's a new way of, of looking at a very age-old problem, which is providing the best care for an entire group. And I think that's that's the exciting part. I think that's where um, medical practices are, are taking some well-needed kind of recharging steps to get their practices um, in tip-top shape to, to, to make sure that their patients are in, in the same shape. Andy, I think you're absolutely right. And I think what is the goal, is for, as you said, is providing the best care to your, all of your patients. And I think with that patient focus and a physician-led organization is going to, to be able to meet the, the demands of value-based payment and succeed in that new environment. And I want to say, Andy, thank you so much for your time. I, I believe our listeners will find the discussion most interesting. I did. And I hope that we'll have an opportunity to meet many other people at the annual conference as we have our opportunity to present our pre-con there. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. It was a pleasure talking with you. 